scriptures to Matthew chapter 22, and this morning we will be um, looking at this passage again. We we did not settle everything that needed to be shared um, in in my preparation at least last Lord's Day, and so this is the second part of last week's sermon, Christ and the Law of Love, and um, what a blessing it's been to sit in this passage and to understand where love comes from, and sometimes we... Um, we forget about where love comes from. I think we think it comes manufactured even from our own selves. And this morning we're going to be looking more closely at the love of God, God's love. And this morning in our scripture reading, we, um, we were reading that God is love. And the fact is that in, in this world, uh, this world thinks love is God. And, and if you don't know the difference between the two, then listen carefully today because love is not God. God is love, and uh, you need to know his love. If you think that love is God, you will be led astray and brokenhearted and hopeless and will never know the love of God. Um, And so listen carefully. And so in uh, Matthew chapter 22 and verse 34 is our passage um, this morning. But when the Pharisees heard that he silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is it's like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now where the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one is able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. Thus says the word of God. Would you pray with me as we get into the scriptures this morning together? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open up your book this morning and to read about you, to, re- to see you reveal yourself to us. We thank you for the great teacher in our hearts, the Holy Spirit, who brings things to light that were hidden in mystery and in darkness and even sometimes faithlessness and now brings these things to the front and showcases your glory for us. I pray that our, our, our hearts are not blind this morning to reveal, to see what's revealed to us in your glories through Jesus Christ. God, we want to thank you for your love. It is, it is, we just feel so unworthy, uh, but so, so loved. We're just so strongly embraced by you. And we're still really accepting this love and believing upon it and entrusting ourselves to it. So thank you, Father, for being a, a father who's patient as you pour your love on us that The way in which we respond isn't always right or complete. Thank you for loving us with a father's love. And today, we want to hear you speak to us as a father. So we come come as children to hear your word and to learn of your love and, and the demand that that love has upon us. We pray that you might glorify yourself in this time. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The command to love... The command to love is not loveless. 
The command to love is not loveless. It might sound a little funny to hear someone command love. If you're reading the scriptures, you come across this passage here and all of a sudden you hear Jesus say, you must love God. You you should love God. You might feel like maybe, uh, like I did when I was kindergarten and I called a girl a bad name and I had to stand outside of the classroom with that girl and teacher and confess to her, you know, ask her forgiveness. I didn't really feel like it on the inside that I had to confess. I was just going through the motions. You feel like maybe God's commanding us to love him. It doesn't feel like a command is the right thing to do when we're talking about love and loving someone. But this is the first great commandment, and so let's unpack that because we, we need to understand that the commandment to love is not loveless. Would you turn back into um, John's epistle in 1 John chapter 5 with me? In 1 John chapter 5, just a chapter later than we were reading earlier in our, our congregational reading, 1 John chapter 5 and verse number 2 describes the love that, that God has for us. And, and as we seek to answer this question as to why isn't the command loveless, why is it that love is commanded, um, we'll be unpacking this perhaps this morning in some layers. First um, John chapter 5, verse 2, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God. What is the love of God? that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? We have entered into true love. When you were ransomed by the blood of Jesus Christ and your sins were pardoned and you became a righteous person justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you became part of a family of love. You might have been a a family that had love in it before, a a blood family that had love. There's no doubt that you you would love one another in your family. But but this love is is a love in truth. It's a love that is bought by an incorruptible blood and it's a, a love that is unbreakable and immeasurable. It's a love that has God in the midst of it. It has God's essence in it. This love that we have entered into is a love incomparable. There will be never anybody who loves you even close as close as how God loves you. And we're going to explain a little bit about that love of God. And I believe actually the love of God woos us to obey his command. I believe that the love of God compels us in the sense of a deep inward urging that we want to obey this command. And so it isn't a dry, heartless, loveless command. When you recognize what God is calling us to love, who God is calling us to love, it's almost like the word commandment sort of fades away. The the compulsion of that, the the stiffness of that, the sterility of the word commandment fades away. We have a God who actually is lovable. He is lovable. And that's that's what we need to see in this commandment. There is nobody who loves you more than God and there's nobody more lovable than God. Let's meditate on that even this week. There's nobody more lovable than God. And I don't know if that could be a little bit insulting or offensive to you and maybe there's just a little bit of a a spasm that happens in your conscience when you hear that because maybe, maybe you haven't found God to be lovable. Maybe you haven't understood him to be lovable. You've thought of him as many things. You've thought of him, yes, certainly, maybe as loving at times and, and harsh at times and, 
and wise at times and powerful at times. But, but the idea that God would be lovable might not be something that really comes to your mind first. Well, the, the, uh, the truth that God is lovable has every hope in it for our, our purpose, for our life, for our, for our destiny, for our satisfaction. First of all, we see that God commands love. We are made in the image of God. We're made in the image of God. And this makes it possible for us to love God among all the creatures. Yes, please. This makes it possible for us to, to love God among all the creatures. You see, we are a unique part of this world. There's no other uh, creature that is able to... Um, there's no other creature that's able to really respond with, with love like God. A God-like love. Your pet, your fish... Your cat, your dog, your gerbil. None of them have the capacity to love God in the way that God has uniquely um, uh, designed man to love him. As image bearers of God, we bear the capacity, we own the capacity to love in a way in which is distinct from all the rest of creation. And where is that love supposed to go towards? Well, Jesus is saying in this commandment that, first of all, that love is owed back unto God. That love, that capacity, that ability to love is first owed back to God. And then secondly, to fellow image bearers. But in the making of man, in the making of us, what was it about God that desired to make human beings? We know that God is perfect in that he dwells in perfect peace with himself in a triune uh, way, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are completely self-sufficient beings, three in one. God could have, and, and actually I'm going to undo this statement, but let's just put it as a theory, God could have just gone throughout all of eternity without ever creating a human being. Okay, In one sense, he would be completely satisfied with himself. You see, he just doesn't need anything. He is self-existent. He's the self-existent one. And so there's, there's an all-sufficiency in him. He didn't make man because he needed company. He had perfect communion and unity within his own holy trinity. But when you discover that there's something about that trinity that is reflected in the image of man, and particularly in this passage, and that something is love, then we come to... Um, a thesis or proposal that we had said before, God didn't need to make man. No, he didn't. But he loved to make man. But he loved to make man. I want to read for you just a, a little, um, little portion of an explanation of that. See if we can bring some clarity to that in a book that I've been reading called Delighting in the Trinity. And the author had been saying that, that God loves himself. He loved, he, he loved his only begotten son. And he loves the Holy Spirit. He loves himself. Then how, does, how do we fit into that equation? Thus, Jesus Christ, God the Son, is the logic, the blueprint for creation. He is the one eternally loved by the Father. Creation is about the extension of that love outward so that it might be enjoyed by others. The fountain of love brimmed over. The father so delighted in his son 
that his love for him overflowed so that the son might be the firstborn among many sons. God so loved his son that he wanted to share that love even more. And so he has made more sons to share that love that he has for the son. As Paul puts it in Romans 8.29, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn, the one that was loved, among many that are loved, the firstborn among many sons. This God does not this God does not begrudge having someone else beside him. He enjoys it. God has always enjoyed showering his love on his son, and in creating he rejoices in showering it on children he loves through his son. So you're a child of God today because God loves Jesus. And that love just kept emanating out, out, outward. You, you are loved today by God because God brims over with love. He overflows the brim with love. He is a loving God and his love just doesn't stop. Even in the infinitude of his own second person, it continues to emulate into his own creation, making more sons after the pattern of his firstborn son. You were created because God's love didn't stop even in the fullness and self-sufficiency of his own Trinitarian unity. You were created to experience the love of God. You were created because God loves. And because God loves, you can experience that love and you can return that love in all these things. So God commands love and he desires it because he enjoys it himself and he knows that he has designed you to be a lover. He has designed you with the capacity to love and he has become, or he is, um, the one whom um, is, is the fully satisfying one. He is the one who you could love and never be disappointed in. He's the one who you could learn to love and never find the end to it, never become exhausted. I'd like to propose that perhaps throughout all of eternity we will continue to grow in our love for God. That is to say that once we have entered into the presence of God, we will have a great fullness of love and we will experience complete peace with God and unity with God. But, but maybe some of our journey in eternity is a growing love of God, a growing understanding and a knowledge of his ways and an appreciation for his person. So that just like when you were married, if, you, if you're married here, if you were married on the day in which you said your vows, you really loved your spouse. But I would hope and pray that today you love them even more. And you didn't know you could love them more then. You maybe had some sort of thought that you would. But now you love them even more. A child being born into your family, you love that child, that little baby, and your love has grown. So too is our capacity to love God on a more and more basis. But God's capacity is already filled up to the brim. He loves you with no less love today than yesterday or tomorrow. So God commands love, and, and he, he commands love because he wants us to enter into a love like his. He wants to rescue us from the love of this world. John will write about that in 1 John 4. He'll say that we ought to despise, we ought to forsake loving the things of this world, setting our affection, setting our expectations on the things of this world to satisfy. Whether it's um, pride and position or possessions or popularity, all these things have hold out a false sense of satisfaction. And God says, don't look around this world for love. Look within myself for what will satisfy you. 
So turn with me in your Bibles to to the priestly prayer of Christ in John 17. And listen as Jesus prays towards the Father in his um, revealing to us and his pouring out of his heart before the Father that you and I would experience Trinitarian love. Now that is, that's an unusual word for us to talk about when we're talking about human beings loving something or someone. But I want you to hear how Jesus describes his passion for us to know the love of God. In John 17 and verse number 23, Jesus has been praying and he has been pouring out his heart as a priest would before the Father for the great work of redemption to take place through him. That God would find the people of God acceptable through his work about ready to take place on the cross. John 17:23, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Notice in that second part there, that they, the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Just think on that for a minute. How much does God, how much does Jesus pray that God will love you? As much as he loves himself. That that you and I will experience the love of God in such a way that we have a love that is perfect. You know, the mark of a Christian, as found in in this context is that we are a people who of all people in this world should be walking around very confidently because no matter if the entire world hates us, it doesn't even make us flinch because we are perfectly satisfied because God himself loves us. We are loved by God with a perfect, saving love. So God commands love because... He is love. And he has a perfect love. And God loves, so he doesn't just command it. So the second point is that God loves. God is love, and God does what he commands. He loves. In 1 John 4, 8, we read this morning, anyone who does not love God does not know God, because God is love. God does the very same thing that he requires of you. He's giving you a commitment that he already is emulating, that he already is perfecting, that he already is living out. God's no hypocrite. When God says for you to love your enemy, God has already done that. He loved you. And so God loves the commandment that God gives to you and I. He himself is already living out. But there's no fuller expression of love than there is in God himself. God isn't just loving, he is love. Love isn't measured, love wasn't measured on the cross, love is measured in Jesus Christ. The love of God is measureless since he himself is boundless. And God loves in his mighty acts of love, but his acts of love are expressions They're the outworkings, the the brimming over, the, the overflowing of the brim of the fullness and perfection of himself. Love. God is love. 
and that God is love is our only hope and it reveals His personhood. God's love reveals His personhood and His interest in you and I. This isn't some ethereal, mystical force. This isn't some sort of of just figure that's transcendent and untouchable. That God is love makes God approachable. God made Himself approachable by His own very essence of being love. Not only is God love, but God is the origination of love. God is where love begins. God's the one who invented love. God originated it. He created it. It would be easy to say that if you love God above all else, that His love will flow through you to others. And it's easy to say that because it's true. It really is true. I don't know that we really believe that we can love other people with the love of God. And so we just simply don't. The fact is that when we don't love other people with the love of God, we can know this. We aren't loving God either. There could be a Christian, um, maybe even, you know, um, someone who's walked with the Lord for a long time, and they could say, I love God, but I can't stand that person. I'm a good Christian, but there's just some people. The fact is that it's impossible to say that. God's love is the origination of love, and if you have the love of God, then you have love for others. These commands that Christ gives here, the first and second commandment, which are a summation of all the law, are set in order both by priority and by process. We are first to love God above everybody else and everything else. And secondly, to love others as we love ourselves. They're They're set apart. First, he says, the first great commandment. So it's the priority. And then the process is you love God, if you love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, this love is going to flow through you so that you can love others. By priority, no other person should receive the fullest measure of our love than God himself. You know, God knows that when you are consumed with loving him, that you are completely fulfilled. The essential nature and purpose of your existence is to know what it is to love God supremely. The essential nature, the essential purpose Your existence revolves around loving God supremely. When you love God in such a way, you will be overcome with love. Loving God chiefly will result in loving others selflessly. When we have a right view of God, we will have a right view of others and ourselves. And that's really the the reorienting that Christ is doing with the lawyer here. I want to remind you of of the logic and the reasoning of this lawyer. He's a scribe, he's a lawyer. He has been reasoning out the scriptures. He's been arguing the arguments of the scriptures. He's, he's really well versed at the code of the law, the intent of the law. And Jesus is going after him with an understanding of, of if once you get the right thing into place, when you, put, when you have a right view of God, you will have a right view of others and of yourself. And so if you have a wrong view of others, it tells you so much about your fellowship with God tells you so much about your theology. But also, when we love God fully, we will, other, we will love others freely. When we love God fully, we will feel free to love others. Because when we draw close to God in love, we are freed from fear to love others sacrificially. We have everything we want in God, so we demand less from others, and that's the fear. We are, we, we're reading in, in 1 John 4, 19, 4, 17, 
that perfect love cast out fear. The reason why you and I have struggled with loving others is because we wonder, are we going to be loved back? Is it, are we going to be loved back to whatever measure we believe we deserve? Do we get, do we get an, a return on our investment? And God just simply says, when you, when you are fully satisfied with loving me, you will love others freely without indebting them to your love. You will love others freely without return, without a return of the investment. The fear that grips our hearts and one reason why we don't love others selflessly and freely is because we're, we're fearful that we won't get what we think we need from them. But when we're consumed with a love for God, we love others without any expectation. We love others without any demands. And so we, when we love God fully, we get over ourselves. We could say when our love for God is our chief priority, we get over ourselves. We get over that, that uh, bump in our spirit that's preventing us to really love someone when we love God truly and freely. You know, God's commands are always for our good. We don't always believe that. But in our childlike nature, as, as um, fallen human beings, we need God to tell us what's right and wrong. We need God to give us guidance. We need God to give us commands. And God's commands always are for our good. And the fact is that we cannot even imagine how good they are for us. No doubt, no matter how long you've walked with the Lord, you have reaped benefits of making wise and godly decisions in your life. And you've been able to look back and rejoice and celebrate God's kindness because you obeyed a command of God and look where you are. You, you avoided a certain tragedy. You avoided a certain dramatic situation, a broken heart or whatever it was just because you obeyed God at a certain point. The fact is that when we obey God's commands, it's more good for us than we could ever imagine. But God's law... God's law is designed to shape the heart in holy satisfaction to draw us near to Him. The law of God can feel negative at times when God says do this or don't do this, but when it does, one must be reminded that God is holding us back from something far more destructive to our lives than we could calculate. And we are good at calculating, aren't we? So often as we rationalize our sin and the things that we're about ready to do, we will sit down and we'll count the beans will count the cost of, of the sin we're about ready to enter into. And we'll say and we'll reason out that we can, we can probably withstand some of the consequences. Sometimes that rationalization doesn't happen over an hour. It happens in the flicker of a, of, a, of a second in our mind as we rationalize what we're about ready to say or what we're about ready to do. And we're calculating and we're calculating that we can withstand the consequences of the choice that we're going to make that is, is a wrong choice. But God's holding us back from destructive things. This morning I want us to highlight this, this, um, one truth, this one question. Why is it called the greatest commandment? Why is this called the greatest commandment? And I'd like for us to look at several truths, several pillars that help us to see why it's called the greatest commandment. Number one, the greatest commandment is great because it's like a mountain on the plane of our finite ambitions. We cannot comprehend so great a purpose and so great a calling as loving God above all else. You see, our ambitions are so earthly bound and fleshly corrupt. 
We are called to love God in that calling compared to every other ambition in our world. Even if it's to become the greatest, the greatest person in the world still is a level plane. And the mountain of the greatest commandment is, is in focus when we see that our greatest purpose is to love God with all of our heart, mind, and soul. Every other ambition, no matter how great it is, is just level. It's just as level as the horizon. We cannot comprehend so great a purpose and so great a calling as loving God above all else. If we were to sit around in a room and we were all to brainstorm and find out what would be the greatest ambition that a purpose could have, it's likely that none of us would ever come up with this, apart from the Spirit's revelation, that our greatest calling is to be satisfied in loving God supremely. We probably would come up with many, many ways in which great ambitions could change the world, whether it's to find a cure for cancer or to, to bring world peace between nations and, and even come up with strategies on how to solve all those things. And all of those are wonderful ambitions. And we could sit around and pat ourselves on the back that we had just come up with a list of ambitions that are just the highest that you could ever imagine, but all of them are a level plane compared to the mountain of the calling of the purpose of us to love God. And so this commandment rescues us from bland ambitions, no matter how great they may seem. So God mercifully calls and commands us from his sovereign throne to abandon all other loves that compete for his attention and affection. God is jealous. And he's jealous in the right way just like all of us are jealous for people whom we love. God is wholly jealous. And so he calls us to abandon all other loves and to seek his love supremely. He commands us to do it, calls our attention to it, awakens our hearts to recognize that we have set our love on broken things. We have set our love on failing things and failing people and calls us to lift our eyes up off of the horizon and look into heaven where he sits enthroned in a holy love. Fully satisfying. Secondly, the second reason why this would be called the greatest commandment is it's great because to obey it will demand every part of our being to be devoted to its obedience with, with our heart, mind, and soul. And Mark and Luke record and strength. Really, the, the idea really is every part of you, not part of your life that is supposed to be left, um, left abandoned unto our pursuit of loving God supremely. It's not a possession we have not a hobby we have, not an interest, not an ambition, not a relationship we have. There's nothing untouched by His Lordship. And so, loving God supremely will take every part of our personal devotion in order to obey it. Not one part of our life, not one part of our heart, our mind, our soul, our strength is excluded from the efforts to obey this command. It's an all-in commandment. God commands that all of us is devoted to loving Him the most. God commands that we love Him the most with every part of who we are. The third reason why this would be called the greatest commandment is because no other law can be obeyed in a pleasing way unto Him unless this first law is obeyed. Do you hear that? <clears throat> you don't have to love the police officer to obey the speed limit. Right? But if you're to, if you're to obey the commands of Scripture... You have to love God first. The Pharisees were obedient. The lawyer knew the word. The Sadducees 
knew the Torah. They had the word. And we've been saying this for several weeks now, but you could look at the Bible all day. But that doesn't mean you love God. You can know the Bible from front to back. You could have, the, you have written theology books and never miss a day in church and taught Sunday school lessons all your life and have the Bible memorized. But unless you love God, the law is empty. For God demands love before the law. God demands love in the law, in obedience. It sits as the first, the original, the pinnacle of all the law. It's not only, it is not only the first law, but it is the motivation for obeying all the law. Why do you obey? You obey because you love. That's how God is calling us into a full obedience, a full faith, a full-hearted obedience to love Him supremely. And fourthly, the greatest commandment is great because of its proportion. So great is the size of God, and so great is the capacity of the human heart to claim something or someone in love, so too the commandment is great in proportion. It is an incomprehensible thing for our growing love to seize hold of more and more the hand and heart of our enormous God. In short, God says, keep coming after me. There's more for you to love. Keep exploring me. Keep discovering me. Keep walking with me. And I will show you more and more of me that's lovable. But keep walking with me. Keep discovering me. The journey is love. He leads us into that by his mercy. It's great because of its proportion. It's also the greatest commandment because it cannot be ignored. It cannot be refused or broken. That image bearer of this holy God who deigns to deny the right response to God in loving him supremely breaks the first commandment and by doing so destroys his own reputation for all other commandments. If one fails to pursue obedience to this one great commandment, they fall in all of the commandments. Remember the rich young ruler who came to Christ and said, I've, I've fulfilled all the commandments. What, what else must I do to gain eternal life? But he didn't love God. You could be the most obedient, righteously pious, ritualistic person on this planet and still be as lost as the devil himself. Because to fail in loving God supremely, you fail in all the commandments. And we are included in that. <clears throat> before we received the redeeming power of saving grace, we stood before God as self-lovers and God-haters. Before Jesus' arm of love reached into your heart and rescued you from sin and its penalty, you were a self-lover and a God-hater. Well, we may have said that we loved God, and if you ask any child in their innocence if they love God who attends Sunday school here, they'll say yes. When you ask any religious person out in the world who's a Christian, of course they'll say yes, that they loved God. Well, we may have said that we loved God. We did not love him because we refused his son and his son's work for our redemption. To love God is, is to not entrust ourselves to the saving power of his son. And that's an unforgivable act and is not loving God at all. If we don't love Christ, we don't love the Father. 
There are many religious people who will tell you that they love God. Even children will confess that they love God. Loving God doesn't save anyone, though. When we hear the record of Christ's appeal to sinners, when we hear the sermons that Paul and Peter and the apostles preach, when we read the Gospels, we don't find any such language as love God and you will be saved or love God and you will be forgiven. It's impossible to love God in order to become a Christian. Our salvation is not dependent upon our love for God. It's wholly dependent upon receiving his love for us. Sadly, many a dedicated and loyal religious person will claim to be a Christian because they love God. And I've sat down, and maybe you have too, with people and asked them how they know they are born again. And they've said to me, because I love God. But that's not enough. Loving God will not save your soul. Because this commandment is so great that no one could love God enough to be justified from their unrighteous acts. Our love for God, as sincere as it is, is condemning. No one has loved God enough. There needed to be a substitute for you and me to love God enough. We do not have a sustaining, we do not have a self-sacrificing, pure love for God, and no one has loved God perfectly with heart, mind, and soul. But Jesus, who became us, loved God in our place, and loved us as God, and completed the transaction of love. Jesus took our place in loving God supremely when he submitted his will to be crucified. Thus, not only through his substitutionary death, but also through his victorious resurrection and return to the Father, we can enter into a relationship through the love of God. So can a Christian love God with heart, mind, and soul? Can a Christian love God with every fiber of their being? Only through Christ. Only through Christ. Christ enables the believer to love God wholly, and that's what Christ was saying in John 17, 23. That these who are yours, God, bring them into the love of the Trinity. Only through Christ can we know the love of God and love God supremely. And when our love is imperfect, when you and I fail in our love, it doesn't break the relationship. The believer's journey, our journey, is to grow more and more in this delightful task of loving God. I'll say it again, only through Christ can one fulfill this greatest commandment. And that's what Jesus is representing before the lawyer here. Notice in the verses following this that Christ says, Who do you say that I am? Because who you say that I am matters everything to do with the first greatest commandment. If Jesus is your Christ, then through Christ your love is perfected. And the Father receives your love as failing, as weak, as fickle, as faithless as it is. God receives your love because it has been plunged into the ransoming, redeeming blood of Jesus Christ. Your love has been made perfect before the Father, even as fickle as it is. Even when your mind fails to love God, even when your strength fails to love God, even when your affections fail to love God, because you have entered into this relationship with God through Jesus Christ, Christ perfects that love of yours before the Father.
If you want to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, if you want to be sure that every command that God has issued is fully obeyed in your life, if you want to have a perfect track record in obedience to God's holy commands, this is how Jesus represents himself to the lawyer. It's as if Jesus is saying, then follow me. I've shown you that no one can be made righteous by obedience to the law. You need mercy before because, you need mercy because you're a lawbreaker at heart. And Jesus is giving the gospel to this lawyer. He's giving the gospel one more time to the Pharisees. None of you can stand here today, he's saying to the Pharisees and the lawyer, and say, you can fulfill the first great commandment. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. Remember that the Pharisees have been hearing Christ's teaching for more than three years now. The way of righteousness through substitutionary atonement, through a perfect sacrifice that God would provide, and Jesus himself saying that he will be the Lamb. And Jesus stands before these Pharisees. Here Christ is presenting himself as the mercy giver for lawbreakers. And God, Jesus Christ, is the mercy giver for lawbreakers. Every one of us in this room is a lawbreaker. And Jesus is the mercy giver. Every one of us has broken the law. But God has provided a way. He's given us mercy. Will you acknowledge mercy? Will you acknowledge your need for mercy? Will these, will these Pharisees acknowledge that they need mercy? What will be their response when he gives us, them this commandment? Sadly, the Pharisees don't fall down upon their knees in hearing this great command. They should. Right here, right now, just as they, he has been rolling out judge, you know, judgment parable after judgment parable behind them, pleading for them to believe, here's where they should crumble to their knees and say, Father, forgive, forgive me, for I am a trespasser. I am a lawbreaker. And by the way, if you're here today and you're a lawbreaker, this is the right response for you. Jesus loves you. And he wants to save you. But you must plead for his mercy. And it is available for you today, just like it was available for them. They should. They should be tearing their robes off in demonstration of contrition and brokenness and repentance and remorse. But sadly, they will stand there in their pride. Their attitude is, I can do that. I've already done that. What else do I need to do? And this is the sermon of the self-righteous heart. I can obey God's commands. I can be good enough. He'll let me in. And that was the reasoning of the Pharisees. And their arrogance and their defiant heart will absolutely infuriate Christ. In the next sermon, if the Lord tarries, in the next part of this passage that, that we will look at the next Lord's Day, Christ will not hold back in his furious condemnation of the Pharisees. If chapter 23 had a volume button, you would have to turn it down because Christ just with power and authority executes seven woes unto the Pharisees. And one word you never want to hear from our God is woe be unto you. And he is infuriated with their arrogance. And for us who read his seven woes, we will be warned of the sinfulness of not loving God and the consequences for hearing the truth of Christ and refusing to receive it with repentance.
So loving God and the love of God. Loving God with all our heart, mind, and soul. Praise God we have Jesus Christ. Praise God we have an interceder who loves to perfect our love, who represents us before the Father, who wraps us into the Trinitarian love and loves us forever. Christian, walk out today with your, with your heart warmed, with your conscience counseled. You're loved. You're loved with the love that the Father has for the Son. What kind of love is this? Would you join me in prayer?